writer, director, and watch wearer. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I have started watching Star Trek from the beginning. Try to say watch wearer five times fast. You cannot. <laughs> do you have a watch tan? Uh, no, because I don't go outside. No, I do I do go outside, but um, I, I, why don't I have a watch tan? Now I gotta think about that. I'm, I'm really sorry. I just remember like at, when I was at summer camp when I was a kid and like if you had a watch tan or like a sandals tan, that meant you were like, you were really like ru- rugged. Like you were like living your best outdoor summertime life. It was like a, a sign of commitment or like it was a sign. It was like a, a sign of valor. Yeah. Or almost like that you were popular because you were like getting invited to a lot of outdoor things. <laughs> <laughs> like that, like you weren't in your cabin all day, basically. Is that allowed? Don't you have to go to activities when you're at camp? Oh, girl, I used to skip stuff. I used to like what? not go. Yeah, I like would like hang out in the cabin or like want to do my own thing. I also like um, when I was a counselor, you weren't allowed to let the kids be in the cabin during the day. They had to be in a, at like events and stuff. But like I was when I was a counselor, if the girls wanted to be in the cabin, I would be like, you guys can be in the cabin. I'm not going to rat you out. But if we get caught. I will absolutely throw you under the bus. Like, I will pretend that I had no idea you were here and I will not admit that I knew at all and I will not help you. That feels like a great summary of your morality in general. (laughs) Roz, like, you can do whatever you want, but as soon as we're in trouble, I'm going to pretend like I had no idea. Yeah. And they they loved me as a counselor. I was a great counselor. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, they, uh, they thought that I was like their buddy, but I was also like, you know, still trying to keep my job. (laughs) This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. It's around that time where we're going to start begging for people to leave five-star reviews and um, ratings and stuff because Uh we want to get a season three. Yes, we do. Please, please, please. Yeah, we have to have a lot of reviews and five stars because um, we need to keep doing this podcast. Please let us keep doing this podcast. This is my only outlet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, a little incentive. We're going to read some of our favorite reviews. And if you leave a review, maybe we'll read yours, too. Oh, yeah. Do you like all the rhyming I'm doing? No, I love it. I love it. And I Thank and you. I love I love being interactive, you know. <laughs> this is my favorite review left by Hellraiser on June 10th. Sick. Sick. <laughs> it's entitled Tamika Fan Club. <gasps> I love this. I've been a long fan of Allison and Gabby. I'm happy that now their podcast gives me the right mix of politics, mental health, and ridiculousness. But I also love hearing the producer, Tamika, chime in with her insights and observations at the end. She seems so sweet, and I'd love to know more about her. This is Tamika's nightmare. Yeah, Tamika (laughs) Tamika doesn't want to be, like, known. Tamika doesn't want fans. Tamika doesn't want uh, anybody to, like care to learn more about her she just messaged in the chat in all caps why wasn't i warned about this yeah this is tamika's full nightmare but honestly i hear a lot of people be like tamika's so sweet we want to know more yeah sorry this is what the people want this is what we need in order to get our season three she's a closed book (laughs) she can't she's she's uh she's a steel vault you guys I also really enjoyed from uh, Potato Totter. 
Great mm-hmm. name. Uh, entitled Life Changing. <gasps> Not to be dramatic or anything, but this podcast has literally changed my life. It's like therapy for me. It's my personal go-to podcast, and I now actively follow them on all platforms Woo! and have read all of their books. <gasps> I have truly grown so much as a person just by listening to them. I have so much respect for Allison and Gabby, and their words are everything to me. Please don't ever stop creating, ladies. Oh, my God. Thank you, Hellraiser, and um, thank you, Potato potato Fan. What was it? Potato Totter? Potato Totter. Okay, so I, I have one from HB123 that uh-huh. says, Longtime Fan. I have been a fan of Gabby and Allison since their YouTube sketch days. I have found cultural commentary podcasts to be hit or miss as opposed to strictly educational ones that are easy to pick up. You have to really vibe with the hosts. That being said, I have enjoyed all of JBU's episodes so far. All the segments are funny and thought-provoking. Gabby and Allison have great things to say without sounding pretentious or self-righteous. As an aside, that's such a lie. I probably always sound pretentious and self-righteous. But anyway, they have interviewed people in fields I would have never cared about and brought attention to issues that aren't necessarily mainstream. I have definitely become a more empathetic person after listening to this podcast. Oh, my God. I know. I love it. I'm going to cry. I know. A more empathetic person. Oh, my God. We did that. I love empathy. We did that. Wow. Well, hopefully this episode today will also make you more empathetic, make you love Tamika more than you already do. We've got a great one. Later, we're going to be interviewing Erin Lee Carr, a documentary filmmaker. And then later, we're going to be discussing working from home and specifically why it's beneficial for the disabled community, but also for everyone. Especially dogs. (laughs) But first, (laughs) hit it! International question! International question! International question! Asa! Australia. True international questions. I love it. We found out that one third of our audience is international, and that just makes me feel very important and special. Hi, Gabby and Allison. I'm 23 and have never fought with any of my friends, even over something trivial. I've gone through a different friend groups at natural points in my life, like primary school, high school, moving to a different country. And some of those friends I've deliberately let drift because they express racist or queer phobic views, but I didn't confront them until I knew I didn't want to be their friend anymore. Now I have a small friend group who I love very much, but I feel like it's weird that I never disagree with them. I don't ever suppress arguments. I just don't feel the need to have them. However, I know it's unlikely that we'll agree on everything forever, and I'm worried I have no idea how to approach it when it comes up. How do you know when you should fight over something and when it's normal to disagree over it and you should just let it go? And if you actually read this, thanks for the many years of awesome comedy and advice. Okay, well, so here's the thing. Um, Are you proud of me that I read the compliment too? I'm working on this. I'm, I'm ecstatic. <laughs> I'm ecstatic about that. We, our new thing is we're reading compliments about ourselves because we want to show confidence and we want you guys to know that people like us. Yeah, we want to seem very hip and cool. <laughs> so here's the thing. Disagreeing about like the best burger place is different than disagreeing about like whether Black Lives Matter. <laughs> um, so I, it's curious like to throw all disagreements in the same pot. I mean, I'm curious, like, if you're actually disagreeing with people or if you just feel like it's weird not to. Because you say, I know it's unlikely that we'll agree on everything forever and that you never disagree with them. But then you said you don't ever suppress arguments. You just don't feel the need to have them. So, like, are there things coming up that you would would normally bring up and you're just not doing it? Or do you is it kind of like ghosting for friendship where you're like, I don't want to deal with 
like any sort of hard confrontation. So I'll just drift from this group. Like what's what what do you what's your read on this, Allison? My read is that I, I could be wrong. I feel like when you're younger and you're growing up with people, like you get into fights, there's like high school drama. Yeah. There's like maybe stuff happening in college. Like as adults, it's like it can maybe feel weird that like you don't ever fight with your friends. Look, I think fight and disagree are very different things. Yes. I also think that like a big part of deciding whether or not to bring something up to a friend is how much it's affecting you and if and if it is possible to let it go or if it's something that's going to keep happening. Right, right. So so like I have one good friend in particular who I know is like very defensive mm-hmm. and I'm a little afraid of her. <laughs> and so whenever I have like attempted to like disagree about something, even if it's something really stupid, it like escalates into this like level that is so uncomfortable to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like not worth it. Yeah. So if I like disagree about something like in politics or pop culture or something like that with her, like I know it's like it's just like not worth it to bring it up. Mm hmm. But if, like, she ever did something to me that was, like, hurtful or something that would have a long-lasting effect on our friendship, then I think instead of approaching it as, like, how do I fight with my friends, I think you go, how do I tell my friends when something they've done has upset me? Yeah. Like, there's a, yes, there's a huge difference between disagree and fight, and there's a huge difference between disagree and, like, they did something annoying. Like, I know, like, my partner is dealing with, a friend who thinks that they're um, like not texting back fast enough. Like they just feel a little neglected. And like, I've had that too, where I think certain people have uh, been upset because they're like, Hey, you're, you're late to things a lot. And I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of a thing that you can bring up, right? You can be like, Hey, um, it hurts my feelings that you're always like 10 minutes late to meet me. And like, it just makes me feel like you don't value my time. And that's like a, a thing that like you can bring up to people. But also like if if you're just like, whatever, that's just what Gabby's like and she's always late, then yeah, it just like it has to be like, how much is it is it making you upset? How much is it like fucking up your shit? Like how much is it something that is just like super hurtful? Because some people might not care about that. But, like, you don't have to feel like you're being weird or you're being, like, too sensitive or something. If it really hurts your feelings, like, you should you should be able to bring it up. And I also think it's very dependent on what that friend is like. Mm-hmm. So if you know that there's someone who's, like, super receptive to that sort of thing and it doesn't feel like a big burden or, you know, mm-hmm. or, like, a big undertaking to, like, mention, hey, maybe I feel like you haven't been in touch as much as I like, and they would be like oh my God, I'm sorry, I'll be in touch more. I've just been crazy. And it's like, not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's different personalities and different people react to things. And I think for me, you know, I have another friend who I I often am upset with because I feel like she doesn't prioritize our relationship and that like we go really long times without talking. And But I also then look at the big picture and I'm like, she's an adult. She has her entire life. Her career is like really overwhelming. Yeah. I have other people in my life who I talk to much more frequently. And so for me, if I bring that up to her, I know that it's just going to like make her feel guilty mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like feel bad. And so I I weigh those things in my head and I'm like, eh, not worth it. <laughs> yeah. But I worry that this person is conflict avoidant. But also I think they think that there, there should be conflict where there's not. The part of making friends as an adult is that as you learn more and more about yourself, you're only really going to surround yourself with people who align with you. Totally. So like, yeah. Whereas in the past, there might have been this conflict because, you know, you're just friends with someone because they live on your street, but you're like completely different personalities mm-hmm. who are always butting heads. 
as you enter adulthood, you should just really be surrounding yourself with people who, for the most part, you get along with because that's why you want to be friends with them in the first place. Yeah. And I think as I get older, too, you talked about drama. Like, as I get older, there's less need to, like, engage in drama or there's less need to have this sort of thing going on with my friends or have arguments with my friends. But, like, that being said, my dad and my uncle are, like, in a fight right now. Like, they're, they're <laughs> it's my dad's brother-in-law and they're, like, you know, best friends right now and or, like, they kind of always are. And, like, my uncle has stopped inviting my dad to golf with him as much. Um, because he wants to only golf with a pro because he doesn't think he's very good at golf and he's embarrassed to golf in front of people. So he just wants to golf by himself with the pro to learn more. And so he disinvited my dad from golf. And my dad is like super hurt and super mad. And then like my dad was on the phone with me and he was like, "Ugh, Steven just texted me to be like, you know, do you want to come to uh, golf with me? But I, he only gave me an hour to get ready and I'm just going to be like, I don't have time. And I'm like, are you just like, I feel like they're like 75 and like inventing drama. Yeah. <laughs> like, because I want to be like, oh, I'm older and like, that's just like, I don't have time to engage in it or whatever. But like, I guess maybe once you retire, you just start back up again. <laughs> well, I think that's another thing to monitor, right? Like, are you having mature reactions to what your friends do? Yeah. And is your mature reaction still warrant you talking to them about it? Yeah, my my dad was saying he's like, I can't just show up and golf with him and act like nothing's wrong. Like, we're going to have to have a conversation about this. And I was like, wow, I can't like you guys are going to like sit down and have like a like a friend to friend convo, like about your like hurt feelings and stuff. And I was like, it never ends. <laughs> Yeah, but also, like, that's, I think that's the approach versus him, like, pretending he can't get ready in an hour, even though he can. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I think that, like, with all of this, like, uh, to me, like, the word mature helps, like, really highlight how the behavior is. So, like, your feelings are 100% valid, but, like, are you responding in a mature way? So are you responding by, like, ghosting them or being cold mm -hmm. and giving them the cold shoulder so they'll ask you, what you what's wrong? Or are you, like, up front and being like, hey, this thing happened and here's how I feel about it? Yeah. Also, if your friend does express racist or queerphobic views, you can gain a lot of information by how they react to you confronting them. Mm -hmm. like, totally. If do you want to like if you confront them, you you can really just think of it as like information gathering. Like, are they reacting in a way that that you think is they want to grow and they want to learn, or that they're just like shutting down? Which like, um, my friend is having a lot of issues with her high school friends because uh, they won't wear a mask. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> And she's like reevaluating, like, can I be friends with these? Pe they won't wear a fucking mask. Like, can I be friends with these people? And it's really bringing up a lot of stuff that like hadn't come up before. And that's something that I think you you say, please wear a mask. They don't want to. And then you kind of have to decide, like, you know, that's huge. That's different than like, I don't I think this movie is the best movie and you think this movie is the best. movie. Right. <laughs> And I also think that knowing that you're never locked into a friendship. Yeah. So, you know, if you bring something up or they have behavior or views that are offensive to you, you never have to get to a resolution. You can just mm -hmm. decide to remove yourself from that friendship. Yeah. If it seems like you're never going to agree. And you can get over stuff, too. My, my partner unfollowed one of my best friends because they disagreed about a movie, but then they worked it out. <laughs> what movie? <laughs> The movie Adam. So they had a huge disagreement about Adam and uh, Mal unfollowed my friend and then they worked it out. But like 
some people, I guess, I don't want to say that disagreements about movies aren't serious because sometimes they are. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that helps. I think don't go looking for fights. But if you sit with yourself and you feel like this is something that I cannot move forward without addressing, then it is worth bringing up. But I always say give yourself that time to sit and process it and see if it's worth it. And if they Uh, disinvite you from the public golf course that you are allowed to go to, I say bring it up. (laughs) And that's Gabby's opinion. Uh, If you want to submit your international questions, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Next up, we've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Aaron Carr. Stick around. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the pod, we have documentary filmmaker and writer Aaron Lee Carr. Hello, Aaron. Hello from a remote cabin in the woods. Oh, really? Love that for you. I definitely feel like I'm turning into The Shining. <laughs> I just imagine you're going through like old footage of your next product and just like have like so many papers and things scattered around you. So I'm right now, there's three like different whiteboards. There's 14 different binders. Uh, my boyfriend who I'm at a cabin with has relegated it to just one room. He's like, please keep your horrible murder stuff away from us. Like, so yeah, <laughs> you are very, very correct. Can you talk a little bit about the your background and the amazing projects you've already made? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I work for HBO and Netflix. Um, I did my first four films with HBO. They tend to really uh, sort of revolve around crime and the internet and sexuality. And, you know, sort of it's perfect for this, but these sort of difficult questions, the questions that we need to ask ourselves as sort of individuals that are on the web and that are sort of, you know, when we're doing things. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about um, the Michelle Carter documentary. Can you talk a little bit about that case and and what that was? Yeah, of course. So uh, it's called I Love You Now Die, uh, the Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. That uh, title was given by my um, mentor, Sheila Nevins, who is incredible. Uh, And it's about this, it's a a case where a young woman named Michelle um, was dating a guy named Conrad. And over the course of many years, they became incredibly, you know, intimate over text, though. They only saw him, they only saw each other like a handful of times, maybe three or four times. Uh, and, but they had this amazing, really vibrant connection on text where they counseled each other um, through, uh, you know, through these difficult mental health moments. And, and unfortunately, Conrad Roy ended up committing suicide at the age of 18. And uh, his last known contact was with Michelle. And so when the police found his body, and I, you know, I want to be really sensitive, it's very difficult for his family, um, they, they wanted to know why somebody was seemingly so much promise, why he would take his life. And so then began uh, one of the sort of the most infamous cases in Massachusetts state history. And I went and basically I had the only camera inside the courtroom. Uh, it was a, a bench trial. And I just saw this unfold. And what I saw was a portrait of two people who were deeply struggling with mental health. And, you know, Gabby and I have been able to meet before. We've talked about sort of, uh, you know, what we care about. And I care a lot about mental health. I care a lot about sort of what is a stereotype and what is reality. And so it was really about deconstructing some of those myths that surrounded this really tragic case. 
are you going in already commissioned to make a movie about it when you're recording the trial? Or do you then get the footage and then sort of say, hey, I think I have something and, and pitch it to HBO? It's a good question. Um, I, I don't think I would have been able to put up the financing to get a camera crew to Massachusetts. So at the time, it was commissioned. But it really was like uh, Sheila at HBO saying, hey, go get this and let me know mm-hmm. sort of what comes of it. And it's called something like a step deal, um, like where, you know, a network will say, hey, we're really interested in this, but we sort of want to see where the story goes. Um, because, it, you know, that was a, a movie without access. That means like I did not get to speak to the main people involved. Um, and that's really difficult for networks to be like, hey, I want to give you you know, half a million dollars, a million dollars or whatever um, to uh, for something where you're not sure of the access. So it's always this sort of dance of that you have to be optimistic about like, I'm the person to tell this story. This is what I'm going to get. I actually got a camera inside, you know, inside the trial, but I knew I was never going to get Michelle. Um, I, I, you know, I asked many, 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 many times, but she was facing a long sort of prison sentence. And I knew it was going to be a no for anybody that was advising her. I've always wondered, like, if you're, like, using just, like, the term, like, the um, villain in the story, do you recommend that those people ab- agree to be interviewed for that documentary so they can tell their side? Or do you think that often ends up harming them more? I mean, everybody. I mean, everybody should be given the um, the space to tell that the, what they think about it. I mean, it's, it's sort of I have to go for, for legal reasons. I have to go out to everybody to make sure that they've had chance to comment. Um, you know, even with uh, At the Heart of Gold, my film about the USA gymnastics trial and scandal, excuse me, um, I, you know, I wrote to Larry Nassar and he is one of the most prolific pedophiles in our known history. And so, yeah, it, it makes for some weird correspondence. Um, but I think that I, um, one of the only ways that I sleep at night is knowing that I, you know, let, uh, you know, other people, I, I did the best I could because I remember when I was making my first film about the cannibal cop, it's called Thought Crimes, um, I didn't know all these sort of journalistic best practices. And I, I remember I read the, the Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. But it, it's hard. It's hard to figure out what is a documentary journalism or is it entertainment or is it something in between? Right. I mean, that's something that, like, I would struggle with, too, because, you know, people talk about documentaries swaying so many people and having such power to, like, you know, like either make someone's um, like reputation or destroy someone's reputation. Because I felt that the Michelle Carter documentary was very sensitive to her and also um, to his family. And like, I mean, I think it comes from your framework, right? It just matters who's making it. Like, how do you um, take into account like, okay, how do I frame these people or your own biases, I guess? Yeah, I think that it's it's a multi-layered question. It deserves multi-layered answers. I think that I, um, you know, being raised by my dad, uh, amazing journalist, David Carr, author of The Night of the Gun, um, you know, he basically communicated to me that we are not equal to our best or worst action. And so being raised and sort of trying to understand people led me to be, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, in a very specific way, a good fit for being a documentary filmmaker. Um, But then also you really like, uh, yes, the story has buy-in from somebody like me, you need the network to buy into. And uh, working with an, you know, an institution like HBO and specifically female executives, I just, it wasn't like, I never got notes, oh, you have to make her seem more this way. Or, you know, and I've talked to many young women who have had to work for like news crime shows. And I think most people have empathy inside 
inside themselves, but it's almost as if certain television shows or networks have a hard time deviating from that. And so I credit, uh, I credit my upbringing, um, HBO. And then here's the most important part is I don't edit the movie. I have so much bias. I go into your home, I eat your food, I look at you, I am close to you. Um, and this is, you know, this is very, I, I end up living in sometimes, you know, with people. And uh, I drop it on, on the desk of Andrew Kaufman, one of the primary editors I work with, and he doesn't know them. He doesn't know them from Bubkiss. You know what I mean? Like he, he doesn't have and carry the same biases. And I, you know, in, I get very fearful about what the family is going to think. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult, but it's important to work with someone uh, really, really smart that has empathy, but is not going to be swayed by that. And I also work with people who have, you know, have, you know, high EQ and emotional health issues, uh, mental health issues. So it's, it's like, it, it, it causes, it, I have to do a lot of work to get there, but I'm really, really glad that that resonates for you. What is that like to kind of give over all of your work and have someone else shape the story? Oh, I love it. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of people like, you know, directors like Stanley Kubrick, their eyeballs and hands need to be in everything. And I think mm-hmm. that as a documentary filmmaker, my strengths are pitching and getting money, talking to people, getting the story and putting it out. And I need a really, really good editor. And I will watch, I mean, I, for my last show, I watched cuts 90 times. Like I was so, so, so in the edit. It really depends on what the editor sort of wants, but I don't know. I feel like a, you know, a great wave of relief when I, I feel like I can creatively trust somebody and, you know, and, and honor them. And like when I'm putting the film out, I mentioned his name and then, you know, Cindy edited gymnastics. I mentioned them a lot. I worked with people who are excellent and I'm lucky to work with and want to work with in the future. I mean, a lot of your stuff is um, very dark and you're talking about like embedding yourself with, with people. Do you ever feel like, like, oh, this is really eerie or like, it's really dark what I'm, what I'm in or, you know, like kind of, do you just get, go in it for like a little while and then pop out and try to like look at a rainbow or something? Um, yeah, I mean, so I just read this book called Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. And I, I always wondered why I'm constantly fearful of getting murdered. And basically people who write or make or take in a lot of true crime you're, uh, it's kind of like you're boiling your brain in that stuff. So you're more likely to believe that someone is going to hurt you. Um, I, uh, before COVID happened, I went to Florida, but we were there and I was alone and this, it was an okay neighborhood. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. And every single night I had to lock myself in this bedroom and like watch television. This one room with the door locked. I remember my, my sister is a clinical psychologist. Um, and I, I mentioned doing this to her and she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, I just think that people are going to come in and murder me. And she was like, wait, what, what are you talking about? I was like, I'm convinced. And she's like, oh, I was like, do you share that worry? And she said, no, I do not. Um, so I'm constantly con- convinced that someone is going to murder me. And so the darkness leaks in and what I'm now doing, which I'm really excited about is I'm going to bring in like a workplace therapist for the team. Uh, to sort of like, mm. uh, like it's called resiliency sessions. Um, so people, when we're talking about this really graphic stuff, it's like, you don't have to like bring it with you. You can bring it to the session. So I think that's a small step forward. I know, I think Liz Garvis did that in her show that she's putting out right now. Um, but I was like, that's good. I got to do it. But 
I would say I'm a really dark person and HBO has given me like, Hey, you can make whatever you want. Like if you want to make something that's not about that, I just always make this horrific stuff. I don't know why, like it's where the interest is. So I just, I don't know. I, I just can't do anything or like, you know, bright or positive. I feel like I consume a lot of true crime stuff and also like psychological thriller novels. And I don't necessarily feel more in danger. Like, I don't think I'm going to be murdered, but it has like completely changed my point of view of thinking that like anyone could be keeping anything from me. Mm. <laughs> well, that's like, that's the type of darkness that's implicit. Yeah. Versus external. Like, I don't assume that they are, but like, if you were to say that like my fiance was a serial killer, I wouldn't be like, no, I'd be like, <laughs> oh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you know like, <laughs> like, I would believe anything about anyone. Well, ha- how do you know when someone's lying to you? I mean, it's for me, it's, um, are they, are they sweating? Um, is there, is eye contact irregular? Um, are they saying mm-hmm. things that feel like they ring false? Um, you know, often people who are compulsive liars liar about small things that you can sort of fact check. Um, I, you know, I'm doing a product on somebody who, you know, it's all lies, you know what I mean? And so if I just come to it from a place of these are all lies, I'm going to see if there's any truth in it. That's sort of like what I'm searching for. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, Alex Gibney, I think has a podcast about like the lies we tell and how to, you know, and I think that there are people that literally specialize in this. Like the things that I mentioned are like easy tells, um, but it's really interesting in like relationships and sort of sexuality and like in all of these different things, like how we just lie as a matter of course as people because we're sort of uncomfortable. Um, so there's so many different ways to lie, which I think is really interesting. Have you ever gone into a project thinking that there's one truth to it and then been completely surprised with what you've uncovered? Every time. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think I, I come to a story and I think I know what it is. And it's about what is the story behind the story? And, uh, you know, I, I want to be surprised at every turn. I want to challenge biases. I'm sitting in, in the cabin and I have a post-it note on my computer that says, challenge your assumptions. I assume things mm-hmm. about, uh, and um, I want to break those assumptions. And whenever I'm working with my producer and she says something like, well, I think X happened. I was like, well, how do we know that? What, you know, who said that? Are they mm-hmm. a reliable narrator? Things like that. So it makes it really annoying to be with on a consistent daily basis working with me. But I would say that I'm very <laughs> attuned to uh, trying to decipher, like, um, you know, how best to go next. And like, is it ethical? Is it journalistic? And is it cinematic? Yeah, that's the thing. Is it cinematic? Like, because you're talking about if it's journalism or entertainment. And I'm sure there's a lot of documentaries where they've left things on the floor because they're like, well, we want it to spark conversation. We want it to be, you know, we want to present things one way. We want it to be entertaining. We want it to be talked about on Twitter, you know, that kind of thing. But do you guys think documentary is entertainment or journalism or hybrid? I think that it should be journalism. I think if you're saying it's a documentary, then I would assume that you are showing all sides like we talked about. And I would hope that a good documentary, the filmmaker's intention is not to sway me towards their point of view. It's to give me all of the information and then let me decide. I know, but so many of the most popular ones you find out later are very skewed. There's definitely things where you're like, you know, this was made to make him look pretty innocent or there's certain things like, you know, making a murderer was kind of skewed to make Stephen Avery look innocent. Like, 
there's certain things that I think are not journalism. But Erin, like, how do you view it? Do you view it as journalism? So I was sitting with this woman named Patricia Bosworth. Everybody should Google her. She is like an epic badass that wrote um, a biography and uh, about like Diane Arbus and Marlon Brando. And I just like basically got connected with her. She was in her 80s uh, um, writing for Vanity Fair. She unfortunately just passed away due to COVID. But we ended up being booth buddies. Um, and we were sitting there and she, we were talking about, you know, what we both do. And uh, I, she said, how do, you, how do you present yourself to your subjects? And I said, well, I say I'm a filmmaker. And she said, that's bullshit. You should call yourself a journalist. You know that you do the work of a journalist. And I said, you know, but I add music to it and I edit it. And she said, are you making a connection? Are you being truthful about what they said? And I said, yes. And she said, you can't shirk, um, you know, being a journalist because of who your dad was. Like, it just, that's your own sort of fear talking. And this woman, I think it was like our first lunch together. Um, and it just was so fun and it was really nice to like, I didn't have to listen to my own sort of, she just told me and it was, uh, we ended up just having like a really fun sort of phone, uh, back and forth. But since that day, I have always now presented myself to, um, to subjects as a journalist. Erin, can you talk a little bit about your dad and how he's impacted your work and your view of the world and your book? Yeah. Um, my dad is epic. Um, his name, uh, David Carr, and uh, he was formerly addicted to crack cocaine and to alcohol. It's never where people think I'm going to start talking about when I talk about my father, specifically people who don't know the story. They're like, what? What is she talking about? Did she just say crack? <laughs> um, and so he ended up being this uh, really prolific, amazing writer for the New York Times. And, uh, you know, when uh, when he... I think in the summer of 2008, he started writing his own memoir called The Night of the Gun, where he explained how he went from being a severely addicted person, somebody who um, had to go to rehab five times, um, you know, uh, to somebody that you could trust, that was not a liar, that was a sober person. Um, and so it was a pretty unique and incredible transformation. And uh, he was a single dad until I was six. We were incredibly close. Um, he died incredibly suddenly at the age of 58 in 2015. Uh, my whole family was, it was like a crater. It was just, we had no idea it was coming and he was very much the, the person in our life. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, I, he sent me, I think it was like 1,941 emails over the course of our sort of digital life. And there was such cool stuff inside the emails in terms of advice, in terms of business, in terms of how to talk to people, um, you know, him sending me things. And so I ended up writing a book for Random House called All That You Leave Behind, which is sort of a meditation on this incredible advice that this person gave me, um, you know, before he passed away. But it's also a how-to guide. Like, I think so many people experience self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And I'm, you know, I'm a dummy. And I think that it was me coming out of that framework and recognizing that, um, that's just not who I was going to be. Yeah. Um, my father's a alcoholic too. And that's how I was given the night of the gun in college. A friend of mine gave it to me and it was like a life changing book. I can't recommend it enough. Um, and like I, yeah. And I, I briefly met your father before he passed and, um, an amazing person as well. Like I, if you're listening, if you're a listener to the show, please, get Aaron's book and um, also get Night of the Gun. I think they're a really lovely companion pieces. 
Did you feel like an imposter when you first started making documentaries? Yeah, I mean, somebody, it was more like I worked in Vice. And I remember I, um, I somebody was in a different room, and I, but it was like an open room. And somebody asked, like, oh, why is she there? And it's like, oh, it's David Carr's kid. And I remember hearing oh. that and turning like bright red, and I was so uncomfortable. And it was so clear to me that I was there because I was in relation to a powerful man. And there is, you know, mm-hmm. the, on one hand, incredibly nepotistic. On the other hand, it was uh, sexist, that I was only worth something because I was related to somebody. Uh, and I made it that, you know, in that day, my mission to, to stay in the room so that people would say my name versus saying his name. And uh, I think my dad said to me once something really interesting that, you know, I could get you in the room, but it's dependent on you uh, how long you stay in that room. And I, I think I put it on Twitter and this really awesome woman said, uh, you know, hey, what you got in the room, what is that like? And somebody challenged me on that. So dealing with, and, you know, I give a lot of advice to students and like filmmakers, you know, I'm upfront about the sort of the nepotism because how could I not be, but it's really now about emboldening and taking people with me and figuring it out and, you know, opening up channels. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm done with the, the, the sort of the doubt about it. I know and, you know, belong here. But it was, it definitely took some time to figure that out. And it's actually, and this is really sad, but like it took, you know, him dying for me to really like believe that I was a director. Like I made my first movie, but I wasn't sure sort of how that happened. And I've made, you know, Mommy Den Dearest, I Love You Now Die, At the Heart of Gold, How to Fix a Drug Scandal, an episode of Dirty Money. I wrote a book. I was like, I'm, you know, I know how to do it. Like, you know, it's not because I was related to some person. <laughs> So it's like, uh, but I think it's definitely like uh, overachieving and sort of a frenetic pace because I want to outpace my own peers. Before we move on to the game show portion, are there any like great documentaries other than yours, which we will definitely recommend that you uh, recommend to our listeners? Yes, I love documentaries. I watch them all the time. Um, So there's a new show called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is the Golden State Killer case that Liz Garbus. Um, and Elizabeth Wolf did. I think it's a incredible portrait of um, evil, but also uh, survivorship um, and detective work. And it's about sort of Michelle McNamara mm-hmm. and her writing that book. And then I just watched the um, the double part on Lance Armstrong that Marina Zetovich did. Um, yeah, I think that I think there's so much because we're in COVID, and it's like yeah, there's so much docs to watch, but and also a ton of really really good stuff on Netflix, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, I think. That was your, was that your first one? Second one, yeah. Second. Oh, second one, second one. Yeah, that I think that was the first one I watched, and that one's really good. So I think uh, all of Aaron's documentaries, watch those. Oh, you could have an Aaron Carr Film Festival. Do it up. And actually, people have done that. It's so fun. After being on, like, the Dak Shepard podcast, I got, like, weird amount of like micro fans who are like I'm an ELC doc fan I was like I don't think documentarians have fans but thank you so much and they're like I watch every single yes, day do. in like two days I mean like who who is a famous documentarian besides Errol Morris or Alex Gibney Ken Burns oh Ken Burns. Oh, I mean Ken Burns yeah I'll give it to you he's amazing I love his haircut right people know him schooled <laughs> Um, okay, I actually do have one more question, and it kind of relates. Uh, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest made me think of this. When you are covering subjects and interviewing subjects with mental health issues, how do you handle that differently than th- those who are more neurotypical? 
great question. I mean, I had to work specifically with a trauma therapist for the gymnastics film um, to understand, because, you know, I, in interviews, I hold all of my power. You're not going to know what I'm going to do. I want to sort of like, you know, go through and get the information that I need. But when you're dealing with like a sexual abuse survivors, none of that can come into play. You have to give over all of the power um, and make sure that they feel comfortable and that they are leading the discussions. And it was different in every interview and I won't generalize, but uh, I don't know. I just, I feel like it has been a tremendous learning experience, but also working with people who have made um, films about trauma in the past. So I know best practices, but yeah, I think it's, it's like, being thoughtful, being careful, being well-researched, um, and, you know, sitting mm-hmm. before the interview, looking eye to eye and saying, uh, you know, this is what we're about to do. You don't have to answer things that you don't want to. Um, you do not have to feel pressured to answer things you do not want to. Uh, and so I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't do that, but only at like true, like chemistry and me talking to you and uh, us having a good conversation is only there if I trust you. And I, I think mm-hmm. audiences now can completely see if like, if I just were to drop in and say, I don't know you from Adam and I'm going to try to get this stuff out of you and sort of rile you up. Like nobody would watch any of this shit. It's about emotional authenticity. That was a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to uh, provide some more answers in our game show portion of the show? Absolutely. Yay. Wonderful. Welcome to Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many questions as you want, except maybe not you because you know how to ask good questions. That's true. Uh, And then you would tell me what you would do with that situation. Okay. Our first game. Is this person an alien or just rude? All right. While filming a documentary about Stonehenge... You discover a mysterious cave that might explain things you never thought possible. Right before you go inside, your cameraman gets dumped by his girlfriend and throws a fit, destroying all of your equipment. Is this person an alien or just rude? Aaron, your thoughts? And so why did the girlfriend break up with him? He won't tell you why. Mm. And what does the fit look like? He just smashes everything? Yeah, he goes, oh no, my heart! And then he just smashes everything with his bare hands and one Um, big rock. Has he been acting strangely prior to the heartbreak incident? Yes. Ever since you told him about the Stonehenge uh, documentary, he's been a little on edge. I mean, I think he could be a rude alien. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I have a question. Um, I feel like this is all staged and he's just doing that because he doesn't want you to find out that he's one of the aliens that built Stonehenge. So um, I'm going to say, although I have heard that it is a little bit racist to say that aliens built the pyramids or Stonehenge because it implies that like pe- like people of color who maybe existed at that time who maybe did build that uh, didn't have the ingenu- ingenuity to do it themselves. So I do take that back. I think he's just rude. Gosh, now, now, how could I go against that logic? I don't know. Now I'm not going to back with Gabby. Like, this is just like, I, you know, I believe, uh, I, rude, very rude. Get that guy out of here. Fire him and get somebody great in here. So it turns out that he is uh, rude, but also a different type of alien uh, than whoever was involved in Stonehenge. Oh, so he did. So, but did he not want us to go in the cave? No, he just has a bad temper. That's one of the alien trademarks. Yeah. (laughs) He actually did get dumped. He did get dumped. Well, either way, he's fired. Yeah. Well, can you fire him, you know, 
because he he is an alien and his species is very emotionally reactive. Yeah, but I don't need that on my crew. But then what? And then I'm in trouble for firing someone for like their because I it's because like, of their innate nature. Oh God! Well, take See? me to, take me to the Supreme Court, baby. <laughs> Our next game: Are you a terrible parent? Your child, eight, appears to have telekinetic powers. And as they learn to harness what they are capable of, you document everything, ultimately turning it into an Oscar-winning documentary. The only downside is the government takes your child away for additional testing. Are you a terrible parent? They ultimately save us from nuclear war when they are 12. Um, was my relationship with my child good before this? <laughs> Oh, yeah. You had a great relationship, but now you can't see them because they're somewhere locked in away with the government, but only for a few more years. Um, has, has my life devolved as a result? No, you're an Oscar-winning filmmaker. I care more about the film than I care about the kid? Well, you have to decide that for yourself. I'm just telling you the scenario. Okay. Gary, what do you think? <laughs> well, what are the Earth, without um, my kid doing their powers, would the Earth have exploded? Yes. Or part of the earth, yeah. Well, then I think I'm a good. I think I'm a good parent. You are haven't they, seen your kid in 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 five years. Are they going to be really mad at me when they get out? Yeah. Well, I think I think I'm a good parent. You sacrifice the one for the good of the many. <laughs> I'm a good person and a bad parent. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll accept that. Woo! Okay, our final game. Would you stay with this cheater? Your spouse of 16 years has a huge scoop on the NSA, and, in, and you are in the middle of making a documentary about the NSA. When you ask them to share what they've learned, they confess that 13 years ago, they slept with their yoga teacher one time and will only tell you the scoop if you agree to forgive them. Would you stay with this cheater? This is the first time they've ever attempted to blackmail you. Aaron? I I I just I have to be honest. Like thirteen years ago, it would not be an issue for me. Like I, I just maybe it will be when I, it happens to me. But I think cheating is something that happens, and we are not. It's very difficult to sort of be monogamous. And so I would say, like, why are you holding this over my head? Like, let's just talk through our issues. Um, and like, I don't, you know, I don't need to, you know, hear about Cindy, the yoga teacher. Like, what is really going on? But like, I don't know. I don't know if I, if, if if I would feel. If it like happened yesterday with like my sister, then I would feel bummed out. Wow. Um, well, fuck you, Cindy, the yoga teacher. Uh, it was actually Dave, the yoga teacher. Oh, oh that's nice. hot. That's better. Wait, that's hot. I'm back in. I'm back in. I'm back in. <laughs> I'm I'm a piece of shit. Uh, uh, yeah. And, well, I just want that info. Like, I just want. I'm like, who cares about you? Like, I'm taking down the NSA. Like, I want that info. That sweet, sweet info. Do you guys think that the attempt at blackmail is worse than the cheating? Yeah. Emotional back blackmail, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even consider that. Oof. That's got to, that says a lot about my relationship. <laughs> uh oh. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a give and take. Um, uh, yeah, I guess that is bad. But I, I would be too wrapped up in like, I need the deets so that I can do my job. And then we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this when we get home. No, you can't. You have to you have to say we'll never talk about this again. I forgive you before they give you the information. Do I get a free pass then? Can I hook up with someone? No. Oh, that's bullshit. That's rude. That's rude. That's yeah. back to our yeah. like our previous rude question. That's very rude. 
Well, guess what, guys? That's the cameraman, and you said that you didn't want the information, and that's why he freaked out at Stonehenge. Well, I'm in two places at once. Uh, yeah. In this scenario, there's it's a multiverse. Wow. I should really do a documentary on that. Wow. <laughs> well, Aaron, thank you so much for playing and for being here. Uh, where can people find more about you and your work? They can find it at my beautiful website, AaronLeeCar.com. And Night of the Gun is available pretty much wherever books are sold. Um, and we love to promote indie, uh, you know, indie bookstores. So wherever uh, we can sort of order that. But I don't know. I had fun. I don't think I did the game show portion of it very well. I think I'm better at answer, asking questions than answering hypotheticals. I'm like now like steeped in sweat just by being asked a couple of <laughs> questions about aliens. Like, it's so funny. I literally do this for a living, ask everybody crazy questions. But the second somebody does it to me, I'm just like dripping in sweat. But I appreciate you having me on to talk about work, but also to talk about mental health stuff. Also, Erin, promote your own book. Oh, yes, yes, yes. All That You Leave Behind, and that is available most places, and it is shorter than Night of the Gun, and if you get an Audible, I will read it to you before you go to sleep. And I've got a good voice. Like, let's be real. Like, let's have me read my book to you about sadness and death and digital communication. Oh, beautiful. Thank you I so much, Erin. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about working from home. Work, work, work. You can work from home. You know that song? That was very good. (laughs) Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topic! X, 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 baby! Baby! So this week, I wanted to talk about Working from home, because I think that one of the long-term effects of COVID is going to be a reimagining of the workforce. I've seen a lot of my disabled friends be super frustrated with um, job postings and job listings that they previously believed or were told they were not qualified or could not apply for because they needed to come into this workspace and they Mm -hmm. needed to, they couldn't work from home. It couldn't be accommodated, all these things. And then what do you know, as soon as able-bodied people can't come to work, suddenly all of these accommodations can be made and suddenly the job can be done from home. And I cannot imagine how frustrating that is. I know, but I also, I mean, I'm hoping that there will be some long-term benefit from that, though, that companies will realize that they can be more flexible, that they can hire disabled people. Mm-hmm. Because um, I was, like, reading about it, and, you know, first of all, companies, right, saying, like, no, we can't hire you, our building's inaccessible, whatever whatever it is, you have to come in every day. Also, just, like, even if disabled people are able to maybe go to work, it takes so much more time to just, like, get ready in the morning, to do the commute. Like, working yeah. from home just makes it so much more accessible for them. Mm -hmm. And it just makes it so much more accessible for everybody. Like also um, caregivers are now able to potentially um, have full-time jobs while still being able to, you know, provide care for a loved one or a parent or whoever it is. Totally. Um, And because they can stay home with who they need to stay home with mm -hmm. but also do work. And I think like there's there's also – you can if you live in a rural area and you're like, oh, I can't take this job. It's in the city two hours away. Like now you can do that. Like you don't have to move to an expensive apartment. Like I think it's going to like be 
I mean, hopefully as people start hiring more, I think it'll be like a really nice change in the types of people that are getting hired. Absolutely. It just like expands the possibilities so much more. And in terms of like work-life balance, it lets you do like your laundry during Mm -hmm. the day. Like you don't have to just like do all of your chores in those two weekend days and get everything done then because you have to be sitting chained to your desk from nine to six during the work week. I mean, do you think people like think that people are more productive if they're in an office versus like if they're home? Is that the... I I think that that there's a lot of belief around like um, having collaboration and like bouncing ideas off of each other and like being in the same space. But I I think and I'm sure some research has shown that people are actually more productive at home because they're not like, you know, just like shooting the shit with their coworker for 15 minutes by the coffee machine. Like they just Mm kind of want to get their work done because then they can like get back to their real life. They're not like um, required to work that same amount of time, no matter what. I've seen research that it's like a work smarter thing where Mm -hmm. people are like working, maybe like, you know, they're not like, Oh, I got to draw this out until 6 PM. Otherwise I'll have nothing to do. They're like just doing stuff, um, in a certain like smaller amount of time actually. So, uh, capitalism, you win again. Um, (laughs) Also, I think it's a lot easier to take phone calls because like you don't have to like find a conference room or like Mm -hmm, find somewhere mm -hmm. other people aren't talking because you're just like in your home. Mm -hmm. And I also think that um, it it makes if you have um, health issues, just the accessibility of being able to go to doctor's appointments uh, so -hmm. much easier. Like you probably don't even need to tell your employer when you're going to a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like weirdly thinking of stuff like with people with like – Stomach issues, like I was about to I- say, you IBS, can poop, you can and, poop whatever yeah. you want, baby. But for a lot of people, you know, with Crohn's or IBS, uh-huh. like that's got to be like a huge relief to be able to work from home as well. Save money on commute, save money on lunch, and some companies are probably going to give up their um, their office space. So then the companies themselves are saving tons of money on rent. Yeah, I mean, uh, how have you found working from home and and taking classes from home for school? Well, I always worked from home, so it was definitely less of an adjustment for me. I think what's been nice is that Jake's been home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, he used to just be me home alone all day, but now we get to both be home together. So, like, he's in um, the office, but I still get to, like, see him throughout the day, and I'm not as lonely. That's nice. Um, and then school online, again, like, positives and negatives. Like, I, I like that I don't have to commute. I like that, like, when it's done at 10 p.m., I'm already home. Mm-hmm. Um, but do I pay way less attention? Absolutely. Ah, uh, see, what do you do about that? I pay way less attention. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, but how do you how do you justify then? Because people will be like, well, students should, you know, shouldn't be doing school from home. They're not going to pay attention. I think that it depends on the class. I think that it depends on if the teacher is holds you accountable to be paying attention, like whether or not they require your video to be on or off. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if they like expect participation or not, like I think that the teacher can kind of set the tone of whether or not you have to be interactive or mm-hmm. if you could get away with not paying attention at all. To be fair, um, I was in person and I slept through most of my math classes. <laughs> and I feel like and I feel like that that was in person. You ever mm-hmm. fall asleep and then I woke up with like binder spirals aclo- across my forehead um, no. I perfected the art of moving my hand while sleeping. So I would lay my head down and sleep. And then I taught myself to move my hand so it looked like I was writing while I was asleep. 
That's not possible. Yes, it is. I did it. How do you know what your hand was doing while you were asleep? I could like twitch it. Like I was like, well, I was kind of like. Uh, you weren't asleep. You were resting. But I was like half asleep and I could like make my hand move. So the teacher um, could see that, like be like, oh, she's just writing with her eyes really close to the paper. But I was really sleeping. Or maybe the teacher was like, wow, she's clearly sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> but like nobody. Well, I guess then they were like, that's a lost cause. Yeah, exactly. They were like, whatever. <laughs> so I'm just saying like, you know, I actually probably on video, if I was in school now, I would have to pay more attention because they like can see me in my individual video versus like in the class, I would be in the back like doing my trick sleeping. I also just feel like the more that work becomes remote, the less it will disrupt lives. Like if, you know, if someone suddenly has to like move for work, because let's say like they're a doctor, Mm -hmm. uh, then if their partner is someone who like works in IT or technology, like they can, they don't have to give up their job to make that move. Yes. You know, like I I think that making more and more jobs remote just like allows for so much flexibility for everybody and for partners and for family. Childcare. Totally. Uh, I'm here for it. I'm excited about it. You know who's never been happier? Beans. (laughs) Oh, I was also going to say, as I said earlier, dogs are freaking loving it. Cats, not so much. I saw an article that was like, you're going to have to start weaning your dog off you being around all the time (laughs) because dogs are going to lose their shit when people go back to work, if if they do. And uh, and I was like, no. But then I thought about it and like, Beans and I have been together every single day other than like I went camping with Mal and we left Beans with my sister. But other than that, like, like Beans and I are like, like attached to the hip. He's behind me right now. Like he doesn't remember a time when I wasn't here all the time. (laughs) He's going to be devastated. Sugar needs space. Yeah, you have a dog that (laughs) likes space and I have a dog that would crawl up my asshole if he could. I also think that there's a possibility of um, working from home half the week. Mm-hmm. You know, so like people are going to stagger in when people come into the office and when they don't. Um, and I think that that's also a really good idea because, you know, then you don't it's not as strict. You know what it is also is like useless meetings. Like for mm-hmm. me, like you remember, I mean, this is so L.A. and I'm so sorry to anyone listening, but like driving to fucking Santa Monica to meet with a network that doesn't want to give you anything anyway for like 45 <laughs> minutes so that like you can just go back and tell your manager that they're literally not going to remember your name. Like, please like right. that. Like I was I would go to a meeting for 45 minutes with some people who like clearly didn't want to hire me. And then I would drive two hours back from Santa Monica to Echo Park. And um I realized See, those days I would be like, oh, I'm being productive. I don't have to write. <laughs> and I well, yeah, but I realize also that that is the stereotype of people in Los Angeles endlessly talking about driving and traffic. But it's so true. And like I've taken all these meetings. I've been able to take so many more meetings in a row because I just hop on Zoom, hop off Zoom, hop on Zoom, hop off Zoom. And like mm-hmm. I'm probably able to be way more productive than like this fake idea of like going down to the Fox lot and like doing you know what I mean? Like. It's so, I think, more productive. I would just make sure to keep your work-life balance because I think that's something people are really struggling with where, like, you know, their couch is where they do work all day. And so then they're back on their couch at night watching TV. Yeah. So I think that it could be if you have the space in your in your home to sort of set up a workstation that is separate from where you, like, live your life. I think yeah. that even just, like, mentally that could be good. So that's really, like, the only huge downside I see is that, like, people then feel compelled to work all the time because nothing has changed for them. They haven't, well, like, left the office. 
Well, you're big um, on like work hours, like nine yeah, to five. Yeah, so I'm just like nine. a huge proponent on like maintain the same work hours that you were doing before. Don't like think that now you need to be accessible at 11 p.m. because at 3 p.m. you were in the same place. That's true. That is true. I also split stuff. Like I'll also do stuff on the, the time frame that I want. Like I'm more productive at night. So like sometimes I'll just like have the afternoon and then I'll work from like 6 to 11 or something. Like I, I split it up. Based on like yeah. when I'm the most productive. Totally. I think it's just figuring out what routine mm-hmm. works for you and then maintaining that routine. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise you might fall into that feeling of like, I should be working right now because I, I could be. Yeah. And that that's uh, welcome to my life. That's the whole thing. <laughs> that's the whole entire thing. Uh, learning how to write in my sleep didn't really help me after high school. You were not asleep. I was asleep, Allison. And no, I, you weren't. Has anyone else? You were else, not asleep. You were resting. No. Has anyone else listening taught yourself? How could you know what you did while you were asleep? Because, well, I wasn't like writing words. I was just like scribbling. Tamika, come on in <laughs> and share your thoughts most specifically about whether or not Gabby could write in her sleep. Whatever. Do you think Gabby was writing while she was asleep? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, Gabby. Maybe you were half asleep or whatever the technical term is for what we understand to be half asleep. But I don't know if you were fully asleep and you, you knew that you were writing. No way. No, I didn't know I was writing. I trained myself to write. Oh, my God. Okay. What do we rate this episode? <laughs> I rate it um, five out of five documentaries. Mm, very good. I will rate it uh, four out of three memoirs. Cute. Media. Tamika, you have to use a form of media to rate it. Oh, okay. Let me know if this counts. 20 out of 20 listener comments. That counts. That's media. Oh, we love it. Yeah. Please send us more. Those are great. Yes, please. Please send us reviews. Uh, You can write limericks. You could leave riddles. You could leave jokes. Also, let us know how much you love Tamika so we can keep embarrassing her. Yes, please. <laughs> Thank you so much to Aaron Carr for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon. And our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Five stars! <laughs> <laughs> Stitcher.